Hi, I'm Paul Gladder with Religion Unplugged, and we are having a video and uh, audio conversation here with Jordan Ritter Khan, a writer based in Tennessee, someone I've, I know but haven't seen for a long time. And, and I was delighted to see that Jordan has, I believe it's a first book, right, Jordan? It and is, it is, yes. The Road from Raqqa. It's such an amazing story. I'm just starting in on it. Can you tell our listeners how you found the story and decided sure. to work on it? Sure. So I, several years ago, was doing some reporting uh, on, on the impacts of the Syrian civil war. And I was reporting along the Syria-Turkey border, doing a story about a soccer team. There, there was a soccer team of displaced Syrians in, in southern Turkey who were all former professional soccer players who had basically come together to form this a team that represented opposition to the the Assad regime, the, the dictatorship there in Syria that the rebels were were fighting against. And I took one trip there, spent several weeks, did a bunch of interviews. I came back home to Tennessee, and I knew that I needed to go back and do another. Uh, and in between those two trips, I needed someone near my home in Nashville to translate some interviews for me, to sit down with me and call some sources from Syria and. Uh, and just help me help me with those interviews. My wife, uh, Beth, is she's on faculty at Belmont University at their their College of Theology. She teaches a lot of uh, kind of world traditions and religions courses, and so she's connected to a number of faith leaders here in Nashville, including uh, then the the president of the Islamic Center of Nashville, R Rashid Fakhrudin. So I, I reached out to him and asked him, "Hey, do you know anyone who?" is from Syria, who uh, is familiar, you know, really familiar with, with the conflict there and also speaks Syrian dialect of Arabic, who could help me out? And he said, yes, I know just the guy. Uh, drive out to this town called Hendersonville, which is a suburb of Nashville technically, but feels very much like a small town. And he said, drive out there. There's this restaurant called Cafe Raqqa. Uh, introduce yourself to the chef. He'll help you out. And you know, Raqqa, the city at this time is known as the de facto capital, as they call it, of the Islamic State, the so-called Islamic State. Uh, and so in this Raqqa, this Cafe Raqqa was spelled R-A-K-K-A -A rather than R-A-Q-Q-A. And I was just thinking to myself, is this the same Raqqa? Like, is there a restaurant here in Tennessee that is named after uh, the city that is known as the, the capital of ISIS? And so I went, went into the restaurant, introduced myself to the chef. He, we sat and he immediately summoned mountainous plates of food and tea. And, uh, and we called my source and, and he was in, incredibly helpful in translating these interviews. And, uh, and then afterward I asked him, is the this restaurant tied to Raqqa? Raqqa? And uh, he said yes, and then told me this incredible story of how his ancestors had founded that city um, centuries ago. And, and there was this lineage and this deep tribal tradition in, in the city. And, uh, and, and now it, it was in this moment where it had been overtaken by this horrific terrorist group that was terrorizing the city and launching horrific uh, terrorist attacks around the world. And, uh, and, and, and yet the, the city had meant, meant so much to him and so much to his family and had been uh, su uh, such a truly special place. And, 
I, I just was, was transfixed by the way he told his own story. And, and he talked to me about his brother Bashar, who while Riyadh had moved to an America and had a great immigration story of coming here, his brother Bashar had remained in Syria and kind of chosen the life that Riyadh left behind. And I felt like their two stories complemented each other in really powerful ways. And Bashar was at that point facing the facing the reality of having to leave home, having to leave Syria. And I, I wanted to, to write a book that kind of weaved together their two stories over, over several decades as they both grappled with this sense of home back there in Raqqa and the search for home in other parts of the world. Before we go more into the, the story of these characters, I just wanted to ask one qu quick question right here, which did you think originally that, you know, you, and by the way, Jordan Wright is a sports writer, as I understand, for Grantland and, and you were yeah, covering the yeah. Did you think the soccer team was, was uh, who are you writing that story for? And did you think that was going to be the book? I, I was working at ESPN, the magazine at that time. I was working on the story for them. I did wonder if, if perhaps there could be a book there. I've written a lot about sports. I, I tend to kind of use sports as an excuse to write about anything else that interests me in the world, which is, uh, I, I felt really fortunate to, to be able to do that. But I'm drawn to just any kind of deeply human story, um, whether it has to do with sports or not. And so while I was very much looking for a book idea and, and thought that that soccer team could potentially be one, really from the moment I, I met Riyadh, I thought, you know, I, I really think there's something here. I, I really think that this could be a book. At what point did you realize I need to start springing into action here and uh, structuring this, doing interviews, you know, reporting this as a book because the themes here are really important? Yeah, it, it took some time. Um, it, it took a, a long period of kind of just getting to know him better and better and going and spending time with him really with no agenda, just to, to sit and to talk, getting to know his family. I actually think his wife, Linda, who is as Southern as they come, she is just this wonderful woman from, from here in Nashville with a really thick Southern accent. And she speaks with such fierce pride of, of Riyadh and his family history. And, and she was the first person who mentioned to me, hey, you should maybe write a book about my husband. Honestly, at that point, I, the idea was already in my head, but I, I asked Riyadh, would you be interested in this? Like, would you be interested in, in having your life story told in this way? And, and would your brother Bashar be interested in this as well? You know, he's, he's the chef, he's kind of a, a public figure locally, very charismatic, and so was really eager and excited right away. Uh, his brother Bashar is much quieter, and so it was, we were unsure at first whether he would be interested. And, and Bashar also does not live um, here in the United States. So uh, logistically, there were going to be some, um, some hurdles there. But Riyadh talked with Bashar about it, and, and Bashar and I got to talk with one another. And, uh, and they were interested and excited to, to have their story told. And so at that point, it was just going really deep into their stories and, and talking through things over and over and over and over again. You know, the, the goal from the beginning was to write a nonfiction book that feels like a novel. And in order to do that, you can't just talk through a story once. You have to go back over it again and again and again and find these little details that can make it come to life. I feel really, really fortunate that both of them were, were so willing to sit and listen to my endless questions and the, the minute details I asked them to, to give me. And uh, they, they were just so incredibly generous. Yeah, well, it really comes through. I mean, to get good scenes, to get good dialogue, you need great characters too. And I'd love to have Jordan read uh, at least one or more sections here. And, and this being the subject, Religion Unplugged, you know, 
this book, the New York Times review, I noticed uh, the, the, the author of that review had also written what she called the immigrant and refugee narratives. These sort of narratives on one level, I think they help us understand world affairs in a like easy reading, pleasurable reading way. And I think that's exactly what this book does. Cafe Raka apparently was on Food Network and stuff, but, but you watch that Food Network show, you didn't know the story of, of Riyadh. What will, do you think Americans or anyone will learn about ISIS and the war uh, in Syria um, as they read this book about brothers, brothers like on different parts of the different continents? Yeah, I, I think you know, when it comes to ISIS specifically, I think here in the U.S., uh, so much of what we understand about ISIS and, and their impact in the world is through the ways in which they have exported terror and, and been responsible for attacks in, in other parts of the world, um, you know, Paris coming to mind and, and so many others. I, I think what I, I hope this will show is the ways in which, you know, the, the city that they took over and that they made their home, the people of that city were experiencing uh, this terror on a, on a daily basis. And the people of that city were in this place where they were so vulnerable because their city had already been decimated by war. They had, at this point, no infrastructure. Um, they needed some sense of order. And so there was this vacuum of, of power and this vacuum of uh, th this complete lack of order that, that ISIS was able to step into and exploit. And it had really terrible effects on, on the lives of, of people. And I, I, think that, I, I think that people will come away understanding that, as well as, you know, so much of the book is also set here in America. And so much of it is about kind of the journey out of Syria. And, and so I think readers will take away this, you know, what it's like to love a place that sometimes becomes unrecognizable to you. What it's like to have a home that gets distorted beyond the place that you've known and loved and why they try to stay um, even in amid chaos. I, I think that's what readers will, will take away. And yeah, I, I would love to read, read an excerpt that specifically deals with um, ISIS in the city and, uh, and, and what it was to the people there at that time. You know, I, I remember what, the, what was the last election cycle, one of the candidates was using the term carpet bombing. I'll be carpet bombing Syria. Yeah. Sometimes we, we, we can just think of people in that sense of, well, it's all bad there. This, you know, it's gone to heck. Let's just get the, rid of the problem. Yeah. And I think the book sort of helps us see people, like you're saying, in a different lens. Um, and you're, what part are you going to read for us now? So what I'm going to read now is, is somewhat deeper in the book. This is... Um, through the perspective of one of the brothers, Bashar, who is the brother who chose to remain in Syria, in Raqqa, um, basically until kind of the bitter end, until he had no choice but, but to leave. And uh, at this point, he is in the city after ISIS has taken over. And I should say, um, in the, the, the term that was used for ISIS in, in Syria is uh, Daesh. And so here in the book, it, it says Daesh rather than ISIS. Bashar dealt with Daesh most directly every Friday when he went to the mosque. The Prophet Muhammad had said that no Muslim should miss Friday prayers, so no matter who controlled the city, Bashar went every single week. He felt his body turn cold when Daesh soldiers knelt to pray beside him. AK-47s on their shoulders, raptly watching an imam preach about the expansion of the caliphate and the deaths of infidels. These men had transformed the mosque beyond recognition. Bashar had long adhered to Sufism, a strand of Islamic belief that sods mystery. 
These men, though, carried a false certainty that repelled him. They called themselves pious, but Bashar knew that while many were educated, many more had been trained by sitting in front of their laptops back at home, watching terrorist recruitment videos on dark corners of the internet. He hated listening to them claim the religion he so loved. He heard that they'd imprisoned his grandmother, the Grand Mufti of Raqqa, the man who had taught Bashar to love Islam, who had told Riyadh to teach Americans about their religion while serving their food, now sat in a Daesh prison, deemed an infidel. In the West, people like to divide Muslims up into, quote, moderates and, quote, extremists. Bashar never cared much for this distinction. There was nothing moderate about his own faith. He felt more committed to Islam than to anything else on the planet. He went through every single day thinking of how he could best live a life pleasing to God. His friends teased him, calling him Sheikh. In his devotion to his faith, Bashar figured, he was the very definition of extreme. Esh was something altogether different. Bashar saw the world as a place filled with the wonders of God's creation. Esh saw it only as a place full of things to burn. Wow. Um. Are there surprises to these brothers? Do, do we, in the end, do, do they and their family end up okay? And are you able to tell us that? Yeah, you know, I, I've wondered about that question, but ultimately, I, like, this is a true story. And I, uh, I don't feel concerned about spoilers because th these are real people with real lives. Um, they're okay. I will tell you they are, they are okay. Uh, Bashar and family now live in Germany. Uh, and I, I spent... Um, a week with them while I was working on the book. They're, they're in their home. Their journey there was long and incredibly harrowing. And there were many, many moments when they did not think they would make it or think that uh, their children would make it. But they did. They're there and they're, they're safe and secure and uh, working to make, make their home. Um, their children are already, they've been there about two years, I guess. Their children are fluent uh, in German. Bashar and his wife Aisha are coming along in, in their own their own language skills. And yeah, they're, they're trying to just build a new home. Much of the book centers around, including the, the beginning, uh, Riyadh's at the height of the Civil War. He, uh, with no notice, while telling basically no one except for his wife, booked a flight from Nashville to Turkey and then crossed over the border into Syria to try and help help his family get out. They didn't know he was coming. They didn't think it was the smartest idea for him to show up. He, by virtue of being an American citizen, was target uh, there in Syria because an American passport is extremely valuable in, in a place uh, that's kind of riddled with chaos like, like Syria was at that time and remains in many ways. So, you know, on, on the religion part of it, so Sufis, as you noted, he uh, Bashar was a Sufi, a Muslim, and it was Riyadh also uh, in that part of Islam? He's not. Uh, Riyadh is, you know, it's interesting. The, the brothers didn't grow up very religious. Um, Raqqa historically, the, the tribal code is, is kind of more prevalent than Islam or, or other faiths. Um, you know, there's Christian community as well in, in Syria, including in Raqqa, but uh, Raqqa's culture tended to be somewhat secular and, and just more governed by, by kind of these tribal, ancient tribal codes. But they, they both were drawn to Islam as they grew older. Um, they, they found, I think, a goodness in, in that faith that, uh, whereas sometimes the tribal code could be very 
it had a lot of goodness to it as well, but also could be really ruthless and, and violent at, at times. And um, and so they, they were both drawn to Islam, but to different strands. Uh, and, and so it looks different for the two of them, and they'll sometimes tease each other a little bit. What What is their sense of within Islam, ISIS and Al-Qaeda or the, the radicals, how do they talk about uh, Islam in their country and especially what, what ISIS represents? Because I've heard some Muslims say, well, that's not Islam. And then others like the cover story uh, by Graham Wood at the Atlantic said, no, ISIS is, it's the most, you know, they think they're more Islamic than other uh, Muslims. So I'm just curious, how did, um, how did Riyadh sort of reconcile or think about uh, these yeah. radicals who took over his, uh, well, part of his country and, and his home yeah. city. I, you know, the person I've spoken to, um, to the most about that is, is Bashar, because he was there when ISIS was in full power. And, um, you know, he, he would very much be, I don't know if he ever directly said the sentence to me, I, this is not Islam, but he, he has said definitely that they perverted his faith. Um, and to him and other members of his family, his wife Aisha said the same thing. Um, of all of the actors who were violent in their city, which includes the Syrian regime, which includes some so-called democratic rebels, which includes the governments of Russia, Iran, and the United States. Um, all of these actors uh, enacted violence on, on the people of Raqqa. And um, Bashar and Aisha said to me, the ones that they just felt the most anger toward uh, were ISIS because of the fact that they perverted their faith. They deeply committed their own faith and they, they hated seeing the language of their faith used for um, violent ends and and they hated seeing distorted in such a way that made it unrecognizable to them they hated having to explain to their children um who they were trying to raise in, in islam um that's yes these horrible people who are in our city who are doing such terrible things call themselves muslim um here is what they are doing is not an expression of the religion that we're raising you in and that we're teaching you so that that was really painful for for them as a family. Well, I'm curious. You know, the New York Times review uh, said that you reported and wrote with a lot of sympathy. I think was the word they used, and I, or uh, I, I, I agree. I think you you had a very a sense of curiosity and empathy for your subject. It sounds like your your wife uh, is an academic who understands theology and comparative religion yeah. and. Is that part of your background as well? Um, and in the research process, in the reporting process, what did you learn about religion that you didn't know before, especially Islam? Yeah, so my, my own background, you know, I was raised um, Christian, uh, still, still am Christian. Um, I'm, a, I'm a member of a, a progressive Baptist church um, here in Nashville. Um, and I... Uh, you know, I, I will say there are ways in which kind of my journey has been along for the ride with, with my wife as she earned her PhD and, and her going through kind of that academic journey alongside her faith journey was very influential in kind of my own um, personal faith journey. I, I, I think that, you know, there were so many, so much of what I learned was just about you know, some of these just small, small, intricate traditions that are so important to, um, to their faith, to um 
you know, the, these daily practices, like the, the ways that they uh, cleanse themselves before prayer, um, rituals surrounding, uh, you know, in the book, there's, there's a death um, and, and the rituals surrounding mourning um, after, after that death, mourning and burial. And, you know, just the ways in which kind of these, these ancient practices of, of their faith still, um, still resonate today on, on a daily basis. And, uh, and, and, and just this sense of faith is not only something that you believe, but something that you do, um, something that you enact every day of your lives. I see that very clearly. And it was really cool for me to, to be able to get to know that piece of each of them and, and get, get to understand it as best I could. You know, I, I wanted to portray them them fully as people and, and their faith is, is a critical piece of that for each one of them. It comes through the book, I think, that you approached uh, this story that way. And uh, I, again, I recommend people buy this book. It's a gripping read. And I think during this time where we're locked in during COVID, you know, we've got our own situation here in, in America. It's interesting to read a story of a fellow American who's got a, a lot more going on in his family than I can ever imagine in, in his home country. So um, this book, The Road from Raqqa, people can buy it at their local bookstores, order it through the local bookstores. That's right. Yeah. Anywhere books are sold. Excellent. Was there anything else about this book that you wanted to tell us? You know, I, the one last thing I'll, I'll say, just because you touched on, you know, this being the experience of a fellow American. Um, one of the things that drew me to the story is Riyadh's experience of this country is that he fell in love with America while a college student at the University of Aleppo, and he, a, he took a class on American government. And... You know, this university was uh, by the Syrian state, which is fiercely anti-American. So the class was basically full of anti-American propaganda, um, all explaining all of these ways in which, you know, it's our system as irredeemably broken and, uh, you know, really trying to push students to turn them off. Um, but hidden in that propaganda was an explanation of the ways in which our system works. And... Uh, Riyadh fell in love with it. He fell in love with kind of the sense of checks and balances with the fact he could hold our leaders to account. Um, the first time he read about the concept of impeachment, uh, he was just completely transfixed and blown away because in Syria, you could never fathom leader from power. And, um, and so that, and that is why he came here because he was so in love with, with the idea of what America uh, represented and, and could be, and and since he's been here, his his experience has been has been complicated. I mean, he he's experienced uh, some ones and um, still has this deep love for the American ideals, and in some ways believes in the end of America more than anyone I know. Um, but he's also experienced a great deal of, of bigotry and uh, you know bouts of incredible loneliness um, and. Um, He's, his experience here has, hasn't been exactly what he dreamed it would be, um, but he has this sense of the fullness of what America is that I think is, is unlike anyone else I know. And, and that's, that's a key theme of the book as well. And again, I, I encourage people to check out The Road from Raqqa. Congrats to Jordan Ritter Khan on this, on this debut book. And thanks for making time to talk with us at Religion Unplugged about it, Jordan. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. This was really great. 
This episode of the Religion Unplugged podcast was hosted by executive editor Paul Gladder, edited and produced by Peter Freeby. Special thanks to Religion Unplugged managing editor Megan Clark. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is a part of The Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award-winning global religion news coverage or to find out more about Religion Unplugged or The Media Project, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at religionmag.